Welcome everybody to the second week of Stewardship ABF. Um, my name is Clay Morton and I am super excited to be with you this morning to worship the Lord this Sunday. Um, let's, uh, before we begin, let's, uh, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we praise you for being a faithful to keep all your promises. You are faithful all the time. We use this time as only you can. Soften our hearts by your powerful spirit. And may we be made more into the, your image as we hear your word. May it produce much fruit. And we, may we be the type of people that trust in you fully and finally. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, Ben used Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25 to explain our job as stewards. And if I can summarize it in a few sentences, first and the most important point, you don't own what you own. You do not own what you own. <clears throat> do you think about your possessions and talents that way? Do you think about your possessions and talents that way, that you don't own, you don't own them? Everything you have, your money, your job, your family, your body, your brain, they all belong to God. And second, we are stewards to use what we've been given for his purpose and for his purposes. So what are those purposes? That's the topic today because I think we often get it wrong. I know I do. Here's what I mean. Before you became a Christian, your life was all about gathering up and amassing things for yourself, like money, success, relationships, and even fame. Then you, you, when you became a Christian, you think, okay, I get it. It's not about doing stuff for me. It's about doing stuff for God. I take the exact mindset and aim, aim it toward God and think I'm living like a Christian. But there's a big problem with that. God doesn't need your help. He does not need your help. Psalm 50, verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God isn't sitting around up in heaven helplessly hoping against hope that we'll wake up and lend him a hand. Not only is he able to do anything you and I can do, he is also able to do it a whole lot better. Now, that doesn't mean... <clears throat> doesn't mean he doesn't use what we do, and it doesn't mean that what we do is unimportant. But in God's eyes, it may well be import, important for different reasons than we normally think of. So thinking back to the parable of Matthew 25 gets us to the first point today. Why does the faithless servant go to hell? Why does the faithless servant go to hell? So the parable that Ben taught us like last week, a master gives five talents to one ser servant, two to another, and one to the third. And then he goes away. When he returns, he finds the first to have used the talents and made more. So when the master calls them to account, the results of the first servant is good. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Same thing is said of the second servant. But when the third servant comes up, the response is much different. Listen 
as I read Matthew 25, 24 through 30. Feel free to turn there. Matthew 25, 24 through 30. Get a drink while you guys are turning. Okay. The one who received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you do not you scatter no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the banker, and at my coming I have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who, who has, will be get, will more will be given, and he will have a, an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And as you'll remember last week, the twist in the story is at the very end, right? It's at the very end. What happens to the third servant? He's sent to hell. Verse 30. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And upon first reading, this seems harsh. He didn't lose the talent, right? Uh, He gave it back. And that resulted in hell. Um, And just because he didn't give more to what, what what the master gave him. And it just doesn't, when you first read it, it doesn't sound fair. What on earth is going on there? And believe it or not, what's going on is the gospel. The gospel is going on in this. If you take that out, the whole parable turns into moralism. Do a lot for God and he'll be pleased with you. But if we can figure out why the third servant's actions deserve hell, we can read this parable with new eyes. The key is what the servant's actions said about the master. Why did the third servant act the way he did? Why did he act the way he did? The third servant tries to have, every, try to have things in bo- both ways. He is okay if the master's re- returned because he was just going to return the talent. He spent the time his master was away working for himself, hedging his bets, as Ben said last week. And what that said was the master wasn't reliable to deliver on his promises, not to the promises to return and not to the promises to reward his servants. But that's just not the case, was it? This master is trustworthy and incredibly generous. After all, the master represents God. So when the third servant said, I knew you to be a hard man, he showed he didn't know the master at all. And his actions further lied about the excellence and faithfulness of the master. So contrast that with the first two servants. They risked everything on the master's promises. They banked fully with their lives that he was good on his word and risked betting everything on him was the best thing they could do for themselves. And they were right. The twist at the end shows that this parable is about faith. Faith in a master. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. You can't have it both ways living for myself and living just enough for God to slip into heaven. The third servant was double-minded 
and his life proved that he had no faith. James 2.19 tells us that even the demons believe in God and shudder. What's the difference between demonic faith and saving faith? Saving faith doesn't simply believe facts about God. It believes that God is good for us. That his rewards are worth having. Saving faith believes that God is so good, we can trust him with our whole lives. Leaving everything else behind. When we live that way, our lives become living advertisements, if you will, of how good and desirable he is. But we say, I want to go to heaven, but I also want to hedge my bets because I don't really trust God's plans for me. Then our lives become living advertisement that he isn't good and that he isn't trustworthy. An example of that in scripture would be Peter denying Jesus three times until the rooster crowed in in Luke 22. But when the spirit comes on Peter, we see his faithfulness to share the truth and not hedge or have fear. Jesus foretells of his death in John 21. He said that it was a kind of death which Peter would glorify God. He became, Peter became a walking advertisement of Jesus' grace and his faithfulness. Another example in Luke 12, 13 through 21, Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool who builds bigger and bigger barns to hold all his wealth, but then dies and has nothing, and God calls him a fool. Would things have been different if he would have given 10% and then built those bigger barns? No. Because the problem wasn't in how he spent his money. It was in his hoarding and what it said about God. He lied about who God is. So what are God's purposes for stewardship? What are God's purposes for stewardship? The parable of Matthew 25 has the answer. The purpose of stewardship is that we would be faithful. That we would be faithful. His purpose is that you would be faithful. That your life proclaim how excellent, good, trustworthy, and satisfying that he is. Genuine faith is justified by works. And those works say something about God. Every decision you make says something true or false about who God is. Every decision you make says something true or false about who God is. As you grow in your faith, that picture of your life paints of Jesus becomes clearer and clearer. Romans 8, 29, he is conforming us to the image of his son. Because of God's grace, faith is growing. And that's why this matters so much. I think sometimes we take the topic of stewardship and we put it in the category of correctness. If you want to dot your I's and cross your T's in the Christian life, take a class on stewardship. But the stakes are much higher. That's the point of of the parable in Matthew 25. Stewardship isn't about separating the good Christians from the better Christians. It's about whether or not you have saving faith. That's not an issue of correctness. It's an issue of eternal death or eternal life. Okay, next point. Faithfulness proclaims who God is. Faithfulness proclaims who God is. We're just going to dig a little bit deeper in this idea. Look a little bit closer. What we do matters because it shows off what God has done in us. What we do matters because it shows off what God's done in us. 
<clears throat> stewardship isn't so much about what we accomplish as much as what our accomplishments say about God. That's exactly what we see in the very beginning of creation in Genesis 1. Our value as human beings are, God, are that God created us in his image. Genesis 1.27, we uniquely represent God. Our value is derived from God. Just like the servants in Matthew 25, our value is in what our choices say about the master. He created us to be living mirrors reflecting his image and glory. Now, how do we do that? The very next verse tells us, Genesis 1.28. <clears throat> and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the, and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. We image God through relationships as in our marriage creates, creates life and we fill the earth. And we image God through work as we exercise dominion. We are valuable because we image God. It is expressed through what we do. That's not really how our world sees it, as you guys know. <clears throat> um, the world is obsessed with what we do. But what's the first question you get when you introduce yourself or when you meet someone new? The first question is, what do you do? Or what do you do for a living? Highlighting what our world values most. And Matthew, if you take Genesis 1.28, it says you're valuable or not because of who you know and where you work and what you do. But, but Genesis 1.28, apart from Gen verse 27, is idolatry. <clears throat> God always intended that we do <clears throat> to be valuable mainly because it shows off who we are as mirrors to his glory. By the way, what does God curse in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve sinned? Genesis 3.16, he cursed our relationships. In seven, verse 17, he curses our work. <clears throat> it's interesting. Why curse the very thing he commanded us back in chapter 1? So the relationships alone would never satisfy us, and our work, work alone would, would never satisfy. In his mercy, he protects us from finding value in what we do or, what, or who we're with. Absent who we are as God's image bearers. And after Genesis 3... <clears throat> the fall, our mirrors are bent and twisted from sin. But then when you trust in Christ and become a follower of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 5.17 declares, declares that you become a new creation. You've been created once in God's image in Genesis 1, and then you are recreated, reborn into the image a second time as a redeemed human being, which means your life now has, has the opportunity to speak even more loudly about the excellence of our God. Do you realize this is the main reason God has given you all that you, that you have? And have you thought about all the gifts that you've been given? And for some of you, it may be musically talented or, or artistic talent. <clears throat> maybe a gift with numbers or languages. <clears throat> and maybe your family, your friends, <clears throat> or the school you were able to attend your bank account, your job, your work ethic. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, what do you have that you did not receive? 
Why did he give you these? He gave them to you to glorify him. So that by using them, you can show off how good and how amazing God is. So you probably have a resume that lists all your worldly accomplishments. But when God looks at your life, what accomplishments does he see? In every act of faithfulness, faithful obedience, he sees his own accomplishment. Through faithfulness, your life becomes his resume. It shows off his goodness, his value, and worth. <clears throat> what, do you ma- what, what you do matters because it shows off what he has done in you and through you. Next point. Let me just turn to the next point. Faithfulness matters more than results. Faithfulness matters more than results. And that, that may seem quite straightforward, but that's, not where, that's typically not where we live. Most of, most of us evaluate our lives based on results and what we do rather than our faithfulness. What our lives say about God. For, for example, as you consider your life, are you more afraid of failure or faithlessness? Are you more afraid of failure or faithlessness? Failure is about you not living up to your potential, and faithlessness is about God, living in a way that lies about who he is. In God's economy, though, our job is faithfulness, not results, because faithfulness shows off who he is. Results, he can take care of them by himself. Okay, let's look at an example. Let's say you move to the top of Mount, uh, Mount Sequoia. And you decide, you know what, I'm not going to buy flood insurance. I mean, I live on a mountain. <clears throat> There's no way it's going to flood up here. And that seems re- reasonable and a good stewardship, right? So you make the decision. And then some developer develops a subdivision right above your house, and the retention pond overflows, floods your entire house. And it's been five years, so you have no way to go back up on the developer. <laughs> I may know those things. Um, <clears throat> so... <laughs> So, in that situation, that flood floods your house, you lose everything, and your plan to go on the mission field when you turn 50, you can't go. You have nothing. You can't go. So, from a results standpoint, you've failed. But from a faithfulness standpoint, you can stand before the Lord one day and give a good account of your life, even though God clearly had different plans for you than to go overseas. Another example would be my, life, my wife, Lee. She loves to teach. It's a gift she, she has. She loves it. In fact, she created a school when she was eight years old to teach all the neighborhood kids during the summer. <clears throat> Most kids want a break from school in the summer. She created school when school was out. She loves to learn. She loves to teach. When we started having kids, it was a bit tough time for her because she loved to teach, and that's all... <clears throat> And all she was doing was changing diapers and wiping noses. She somewhat felt like she wasn't using her gift. Is being a mom to young children enough for her? Should she be doing more? Maybe you, maybe you young mothers feel um, that similar, that it's a thankless job and not valued in this world. So for Lee and I, we had to remind ourselves that we needed to ask the faithfulness question. God had called Lee to be a mom. And how do we know that? We had children. (laughs) That's how. (laughs) But we had had no 
we had no such divinely revealed calling on her life as a teacher. So job one for her was to be a faithful mother at home. And to add to all that, she had the steady pay. <clears throat> she had the regular check. My checks were few and far between and not guaranteed. So we prayed and we prayed. In that particular season of life, we felt that meant her mainly being home with our kids. And if we say we're doing that because it's more important than working at a local school, imagine the pressure that puts on our kids. Kids, your mom gave up educating the future to wipe your noses. You better make it good on the investment. <clears throat> no, well, let's God, we'll let God decide what's important. He's the chess master. We're simply the chess pieces. We go obediently where he puts us with the goal of being faithful, and we leave the results to him because he's always faithful. So in general, there's two problems with living for results. Two problems for living for results. <clears throat> First one, we can't see what's truly valuable. We can't see what's truly valuable. So you take two men, which life seems more valuable from a perspective of heaven? The man who spends his life fighting successfully for faith in Christ as he struggles through mental illness. He never thrives. He never holds down a job for long. He doesn't invest in others' lives and just survives the end. Or a man who heads up a large business and fights for faith to give glory to God as his organization prospers. How can we possibly know which is more valuable? But figuring that out isn't our job. Our job is to faithfully obey whatever situation God puts us in. <clears throat> There's a second problem with this idea of living for results. <clears throat> if we measure success, success based on the value of what we do, we're bound for disappointment. Proverbs 23, 4 through 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle towards heaven. If you're a teacher, most of what you teach, your kids will forget. If you're an engineer, every bridge you design will fall down. If you're a doctor, everyone that you save will eventually die. If you're a writer, most of what you write, no one will ever read. We forget even the 16th president of the United States and what he accomplished, or even who he was. <laughs> That's right. The bad news <clears throat> is that results don't last, but faithfulness does last because faithful obedience shows off the glory of the good and the goodness of God. It will last forever. Of course, we need to be careful when we pit results against faithfulness because quite often results are what helps us to see we're being faithful. So if you're a missionary in closed country and you go 10 years without seeing converts, it's possible you've been faithful steward of the opportunity God's given you, but it's also quite possible, maybe even likely, that you're not seeing results because you're not a good fit. <clears throat> if you invest your money in God's giving you into the stock market and it loses half its value, it's possible that you've been faithful and ran into a truly unforeseen situation, or it's quite possible that you invested poorly and shouldn't have trusted your uneducated judgment. Ultimately, though, what we're working for are not the results themselves, but to be counted as faithful. <clears throat> Remember, God isn't dependent on us. His, he's not dependent on us to provide affordable housing, 
to raise children, to fund missionaries, or to give advice, or to feed the hungry. He's a better leader, he's a better father, a better evangelist, a better counselor, a better provider than you and I could ever be. But that job, those kids, that missionary, that problem, and that needy person, all are opportunities for us to show off what God has done in us. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do for the glory of God. Do it all faithfully, showing off his goodness. I'm going to pause there. Any, any questions, any thoughts? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I've had lots of failure, <laughs> lots of failure. Um, yeah, that's that's good, Cole. I think um, you know when there's failure, some of it probably for me, I learned the hard way on a lot of things. So uh, there's a lot of repenting that goes on, but there are just situations where um, God wants to sanctify you through something that. You didn't have control over, and what, you know. And I and I would say, the thing that comes to mind that you mentioned was, um, in back in two thousand and seven, eight. I was a, I mean, I'm a home builder, so um, I had really no control over the market and what happened. Um, and Lee and I had no money. I mean, we didn't go bankrupt. We just had no money anywhere. We couldn't find it, and so we prayed and prayed. And trust the Lord. And he provided every meal, every, every day, he just continued to provide. And so <clears throat> we had to trust the Lord and he provided. So that situation was very difficult. But I think what, I'm, what I would highlight in is that he's faithful. And because of that, you guys are here. We're here because he's been faithful and we want to worship him. We want to grow. So... I don't know if that helps and shed light in my situation. I've also done things that were my fault and, you know, requires a lot of repentance. So apologies and repentance. So I think if you're in business very long, that happens. So that's another reason why the church is so valuable because you need one another. You need help. Good. Anybody else?
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have to do life goes on and we have to do and the best word that I found for guidance was he leads us in the path of righteousness mm. for his name's sake. All God's children are assured that he will guide us as we trust and obey. That's good, yeah. Yeah, I mean I would say a practice in my life is daily asking for God's wisdom. So um before I you know, making decisions before I go out of the house, I'm asking God to give me wisdom. And that's somebody here told me that, that, and I began to do it. And I felt like that's going to help me as I make decisions. Um, and that they're either faithful or they're on my own strength. So. How, how soon did you realize that that was a heart issue? Um, <laughs> As I said, you mean as far as asking God for wisdom? Yeah. yeah. Um, just, he asked, how soon did I realize that it was a heart issue of me kind of working in my own strength versus God's wisdom and seeking his wisdom and his, is that, um, I think, like I said, I typically learn in failure. So, um and I think you, when you're dependent, when you're, you know, when you have a problem, it causes you to pray, you know. So you just conviction and you just want to go before the Lord and ask him for help. So I think that's the, yeah, I just, I think, learn to do that where I cannot go out of my house without having wisdom. I cannot parent without having wisdom from the Lord. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, obviously, if, if you do that again today, you know, like if you lie to somebody today, you'd want to ask forgiveness for that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Blood applied. <clears throat> okay. Let's get back here. We're on, the, we're on uh, um, what does faithfulness look like? What does faithfulness look like? There's a little bit of application here. Okay. In total, faithfulness matters, but what, what does it look like? What does faithfulness look like? We got into that a little bit with our, our um, kind of Q&A, but there's two categories that I want us to, th- to think about. First category, faithfulness as obedience. Sometimes being faithful is as simple as obeying God's clear command. So I really wanted a promotion at work. It becomes clear that I could lie on this sales call, and if I did that, I would get a promotion. And so I don't lie, and I'm commended, 
on the last day when I go before the Lord as faithful. Even though I can't be as generous with the money that, that uh, I, I was going to make if I lied. Obedience in areas like, like these commend the gospel and is a testimony to what kind of God we serve. For example, when we thank God for what, he's, for what we've received, we glorify God as giver of all good things, Ephesians 5.19. And when we give back the first fruits, we glorify God as being trustworthy, Matthew 6.33. When we're content with our wealth, we glorify God as being sufficient to meet our needs, Philippians 4.12. We use our wealth sacrificially to help others. We glorify God as being loving and merciful. The next category, faithfulness as, compar- as comparison shopping. As comparison shopping. <clears throat> as we often discover, things aren't always clear. After all, the master never told his servants in Jesus' parable exactly what they should do with his money. In the same way, God's glor- glorified when we pursue what's valuable in his economy, even if this world doesn't think much of it. That means that as Christians, we need to become expert comparison shoppers. Every time we spend time or money or something, there's always an opportunity cost associated with it. <clears throat> we could have invested in something else or for a different purpose. Some things are worth more to God than others. So if we want to be faithful stewards, we need to take this comparison shopping seriously. Sometimes this involves comparison shopping between things of worldly value. Should I pay a plumber to fix my sink or use the time to go to Bible study and then, use the, and then use the money that I saved to give to the church? In every transaction of life, from determining whether to exercise tomorrow morning or whether I should buy a soda at lunch, to what job to pursue in every transaction, I can choose the option that's most valuable to God. That's most valuable to God. And sometimes this involves investing in intangibles. Going back to Proverbs, we see a lot of these comparisons. For example, we see that wisdom is more precious than rubies in Proverbs 8.10. Fear of God is more important than great wealth, Proverbs 15. A good reputation is more important than great riches, Proverbs 22.1. Elsewhere, we see that our faith in God is more important than gold, 1 Peter 1.7. And then salvation is better than gaining the whole world, Mark 8. Sometimes this involves investing in what, only, what, what is only valuable in light of eternity. <clears throat> it's been said that you can't take it with you, but you can sit it on a head. What would you do if you saw the news 10 days from now, we'd, we're going to abandon the U.S. dollar and start using British pound in America? You'd convert all that you had into British currency, wouldn't you? You would abandon what is about to, be, to lose value and invest it in what will maintain value. Well, Jesus has told us that's exactly what will happen. Listen as I read Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Sometime in the next century, every dollar you own will become worthless. <clears throat> it will become worthless, either because you're, you died or Jesus came back. 
But you have an opportunity to use that money now to invest in eternal treasure that will never lose value. Same thing with your time, your skills, your energy, and your relationships. Money can't buy salvation. It can't even buy faith or hope or love. But it can certainly be used to build these things up and to exercise them. This is what the widow understood in Mark chapter 12, verse 41 through 44, when she gave her two mites. All she had to live on into the temple treasure. She used her money to grow, the, grow faith in God. And this brings glory to him. So when you lend to a friend in need, <clears throat> even though you know it's not going to pay you back, you're using your money to build faith. When you give someone a ride to church so they can hear the word preached, you're, you're, you're again, you're bringing glory to God. When you give cheerfully the church budget, again, faithful. And in God's economy, those are very smart transactions. So at this point, I thought it would be cool to highlight examples of faithfulness uh, in our body now. Um, And I just want to point out again that if you're here, you're being faithful to um, the word and where it says not to neglect to meet with one another. But I also want to... Something that came to mind was those that are that heading off to Georgia. They're leaving the comforts of America, their families, their jobs. And they're being faithful to the Lord's desire to take the gospel to the unreached. And then I was thinking about those that were faithful that went before us that have passed away. And I think about Ray Edelman, who was faithful to share the gospel and plant churches all across Africa. And then when he got back here, he served as an elder um, among us. I think about a lady named Mildred Papazan who served in the nursery for over 40 years. And, you know, we have a hard time filling the nursery. And she did it for 40 years every Sunday. And she served her, her husband faithfully when he was sick. I think about Shirley Lassie and her faithfulness to share the gospel to international students up to the point when she passed away. And so I just want to open it up to you guys. If there's an example of somebody that went before us that may have passed away that um, you've seen God's faithfulness in their life. Did you raise your hand? Well, I mean, I, more of a question. I don't want to get you off track to make anything. But I think when I, the example of life that
Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, I mean. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, let me come back to that. Yeah. Hey, Claire. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Claire. Yes, sir. That's good. Yeah, I mean, anybody else have something they want to share? Well, I was just trying to highlight people that we've, you know, poured into us, discipled us, encouraged us. I think about Michael's grandfather, you know, um, and I hope, you know, thinking about some of these guys, Evan, it helps us get a picture for like, like Michael's grandfather was a faithful member and, you know, discipled, met with people and was an electrician, you know, and um, loved the body. Um, so, yeah, I think that 
I would consider him faithful. He finished well. You know, I think he heard those words that, we, that we've read in this parable in 25. And I think Mildred Papazan is a, another example of that, where faithfully loved her family, loved her church, was here, um, and then served the youth, uh, the, the, the kids, um, for 40 years, you know. And so... Um, Ms. Melda. Yeah, and I think, um, Evan, kind of going back to your question as well, I think at times it's difficult. And I think, and kind of going back to the thinking about the mom, I think a lot of times young moms feel like they're not doing much or they should be doing more. And I remember trying to encourage Lee, no, this is what God's called you to. This is the most important thing that you can be doing is, is taking care of changing diapers right now, you know. Um, but even in that, discipleship is going on and should be going on. And older and younger, like we're hearing, we've, we've, learned, we've recently been talking about in Titus. And um, so that, that has to be going on as well. Um, and I remember even um, one of Brad's sermons really early on. I can't remember when it was, but I was, I was feeling similar to what you're kind of talking about. And he said, I don't know if he's in here. Um, but one of the things he said was that I think the title of the sermon was the ordinary Christian life is the, wish I could remember the, um, it was, it really encouraged me because it was like, I feel like just, I'm just kind of going along, not a lot of purpose. And he really, that was really encouraging. And I think it was just basically talking about the power of God in, in his faithfulness. And so the ordinary, faithful, everyday walk with the Lord is an extraordinary life. That was it. He said the ordinary walk with God is an extraordinary life of faith. So anyway, I hope that helps. Shed some light on that. Lee? Yeah. That's good. Um, it's cool thinking about even the, the folks going to Georgia and the reason they're going, you know, when you think about, like, why are they going and why are they being faithful is because God's been faithful to them and they want to take the gospel out. 
And even Miss Shirley, I mean, to the day she died, talked about God's faithfulness. Um, and so all of this, our ability to be faithful is 100% because God is faithful. And so uh, in conclusion, just like the faithful servants in our parable, we're called to put all of our eggs in one basket. And if it turns out that God's promises weren't true, when someone looking through your budget or your calendar say, this is a disaster, they gambled everything on God's promises, I hope so. I hope that's what they would say about my calendar and my budget. Bet the house and everything on God's promises. Live to be faithful so that your life shows off the goodness of our God. And of course, the best news of all is that Jesus is going to do this in you. He shares his own blood to redeem you. Christian, he has put his name on you. From before the beginning of time, he envisioned you as redeemed, a magnificent image of his love and mercy. He will spend a lifetime crafting that picture and an eternity showing it off. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Let's pray.